You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. As we study the book of Colossians together these uh, four weeks, we have an opportunity to reflect on what makes our lives full, what makes our worship full. And I want to take you back to a comment that I made a couple weeks ago. You may remember, if you were worshiping with us, I told a story about a pastor who was at the door of her church when the congregation was leaving, and and a man said to her, you know, I really didn't like that last hymn. Uh, To which she replied, well, we didn't sing it for you. (laughs) And I made the comment, you know, that worship's really not for us. And I think on one level... um, while we forget that, we, we really do understand that, that this is for the glory of God uh, that we gather and that we live. Um, and yet, um, it is for us, isn't it? I mean, I got a, an email from somebody, from one of you, actually. I had a very helpful conversation this week um, by email and voice. And uh, the conversation was, you know, someone said, I, I very much need to come to worship. I, I very much need to be in this place every week. I, I need to be called to more. I need to confess my sins and the emptiness. I need to be gathered around the sacraments, this table, and, and, and reminded of my baptism. I, I need to hear the good news every week. And I think that's really true, and it's certainly true for me. So how can it be for God, but also really profoundly for us as well? And I want to suggest to you this morning that worship is most for us when it's about and for something greater than us. I want to suggest that life is most for you when it's really about something beyond you and greater than you. Just ask the exhausted mother of a toddler whether she has more joy when she tries as best she can to love herself or when she gives herself away in love to that child. She may be spent, but she's full when she lives her life for somebody else. And that's really true. And that's, that there's, a, there's a kingdom truth to that fact that extends through all of life. A life lived for God is the only life that will make our lives full. That's really what I want to suggest to you this morning. And it comes from this letter that Paul, the apostle, writes to the Colossians. And just to step back for a second and think about the context of this letter, it's written by a guy who's in jail. For most of us, that would be an experience of emptiness. Probably in AD 60. And it is written to an audience, the Colossians, who don't know it, and Paul certainly doesn't know it, but but historians tell us that one year after AD 60, which by my math, English major, would be AD 61, Colossae would be uh, leveled by an earthquake. And you know how seismic modern-day Turkey is. This is at the center of, of uh, Asia Minor. And Colossae will never be substantially rebuilt after that earthquake. That, as well, will be an experience of emptiness. And God is preparing them, bringing together a man who's in the emptiness of prison, celebrating the fullness of Jesus Christ in his life, even there, with a community that will certainly experience a life-changing trauma. And and God is saying, I want you to know it's all about Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of the invisible God dwelling bodily. And he's your fullness as well. 
So I, I don't know where you are this morning, but if you're feeling trapped or rocked, this word to you is good news because you can experience even there lives that are full if they're about more than you. If they're about Jesus, the fullness of God. With that, let's open up our Bibles to Colossians 2 and, and have a look at this text. I really would encourage you to, to reflect on this whole chapter, but we won't take the time to read it together. It's in my mind as I share these comments, so you may benefit from further study. I'm sure you'll benefit from further study, but uh, let's uh, stand and read together Colossians 2, verses 6 through 10, which is on page 957 of the Pew Bible, uh, verses 6 through 10. And as an act of worship, as his body, let's read... Uh, this word aloud and witness to Jesus Christ, the living word. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading his holy word. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Lord Jesus, we call upon you, the one who is above every ruler and authority, to come and speak. For we desire that which you are so eager to give, fullness in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me begin here. What is worship? How do you think about worship? How would you define it? What is worship? The uh, English word worship derives from the old English word, which is W-E-O-R-T-H-S-C-I-P, pronounced worship. It takes way too much saliva to say that. So over time, everybody started to say just worship. But you can hear in it something of its meaning, worth-ship, to ascribe worth, to ascribe value. To something. And of course, you could speak of worshiping without any blasphemy. Many objects in uh, ancient uh, times, old English times, uh, is another word for respect. But gradually, in the context of the community of faith, worship is something that belongs uniquely to God because He is of ultimate value. Now, it's interesting, this is, as an aside, Paul in this text mentions philosophy, and he's a little bit negative on it, but it's, it's philosophy according to human tradition, not all philosophy. And uh, Dr. Richard Mao, who preached in the first hour of service, is a philosopher trained at University of Chicago, Ph.D., and I just, in the last service we had a new philosophy professor from the University of Washington uh, just arrived to take his appointment here to teach philosophy. So again, I want to say, in case any of you are philosophers, Paul has no beef with philosophy, uh, but he does not have uh, any regard for philosophy which is not rooted in Jesus Christ, who is the disclosure of God himself for all time and all people. He is the one that we should worship. Another philosopher, uh, Professor Terry Fulham, once was approached by one of his students 
who wanted to understand his Christian philosophy, and the student said to him, you know, I could never believe in a God who sits up remotely in some distant throne and demands praise of his people. Think about that. Praise really is the heart of worship, is it not? To ascribe value to praise. And we've been praising God since we first came in here. We've been singing songs. The psalmist invites us to do so. Let us enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. We sing the doxology oftentimes here. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The choir just led us in this beautiful anthem. Praise the Lord with songs of joy. And we'll sing ourselves this hymn later. Praise the Lord, O heavens, adore him. So we're praising God. Now, does God need our praise? Does he sit in the throne like some insecure dictator, hoping that people will recognize that he's really good, maybe not even totally believing he's really good until he hears us sing it in song? Like the wicked queen in... Uh, What's the name of that? Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. You know, it's mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Is that our God? And we know people like that who constantly need the reassurances of others to believe that they're beautiful or that they're smart or that they have any virtue at all. And, and they're, they're soliciting praise. And we know people who are powerful or influential or successful, and you, you always expect to find them surrounded by a collection of supplicants who are eager to say positive things about them because they want some favor in return. Is that our God? Is that what we do in worship? This young student said, well, if that is, I want no part in him, and we should absolutely say no, that is not. That is not at all the picture of praise and worship that we get in the Scripture. And Terry Fulham wanted to point out to that student the difference between praise and flattery. Flattery is an appreciation that's offered to an object for one's own gain. If I flatter you, it's because I'm buttering you up and I want something from you, probably the donut that's in your hand, you know, and I say, oh, you're a really generous person. That's flattery. I think the mirror on the wall always says that the queen is fairest of all. Why? Because she's afraid of being smashed by an angry queen. It's for his sake that he offers this flattery, not praise. What then is praise? Have you ever noticed that when you have an experience that delights you, you can't stop talking about it? You want to share it with a friend. I mean, this weekend, my wife and I, uh, last weekend, we went up for two days to Bellingham to stay in a lovely little hotel. And uh, we went out to dinner two nights, breakfast, and um, my wife even got me to go into a steam room, which I had never done before. And I, I can't say that was a delightful experience for me, but I could tell it was for her. Um, and, and we're talking about, oh, this is a great place. You should go up there. They serve great food, et cetera, et cetera. You see a movie. Uh, and, and you just want to tell everybody, you read a book, you go on a hike, and you say, what a, it's the most beautiful place. See that? That's praise. Nobody needs to tell you to do it, command you to do it. It doesn't feel forced or awkward. You're not reluctant in any way. It's just a response to something that has delighted you. So let me give you a definition of praise then. Praise is the spontaneous overflow of enjoyment. 
Praise is the spontaneous overflow of enjoyment. So if you want to worship, if you want to experience the fullness of life about which the Apostle Paul is writing, as I so desperately do in my life, what you and I need to do is have an experience of God that delights us. We need to have an experience of God that is enjoyable. And then we will praise because we have to. It's a spontaneous reaction. And this is what the Apostle Paul is doing, actually, even as he writes this letter. Lori Wheeler did a wonderful job last week. I listened on the radio as she talked about this first chapter of Colossians. We find the Apostle Paul praising, worshiping. She told you that there's a hymn right at the center of that. It's almost as like he's beginning to write a letter, but he can't stop praising Jesus, and he catches him up in this moment, and he, he transcribes this hymn and builds it right into the first chapter. We catch him praising he says, Jesus, I just got to tell you, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Before the earth, in him, all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible. All things hold together in him. See, he's just like a child, just celebrating something that's greater than anything else he knows. And that something is a someone named Jesus. But now, as we come to chapter 2, he turns his attention to the Colossians themselves, and he begins to address them. And you notice he's not talking about Jesus or to Jesus, but he's speaking to the Colossians. And he reiterates a bit of his worship. If you remember in chapter 1, in verse 19, he had said, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, in, in verse 9 of chapter 2, he changes the words a little bit, but it's essentially the same. He says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So you go, is this repetition? Yes, but now I want to give you the implications of that truth for your life. And we have verse 10. And you have come to fullness in him. You, dear Colossians, you, dear brothers and sisters, have found the fulfillment of your life in none other than Jesus the one in, th in whom all things hold together, the one who is bodily. This Jesus who was born as a baby, inauspiciously as could be, under poverty, under Roman rule, in an obscure Middle Eastern location. This Jesus who lived his life as a plain-clothed man, teaching brilliantly, acting miraculously, giving his life in love on the cross, this Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. And as you come to him, you come to the fullness of your own life. And not as you come anywhere else. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is where God's deepest pleasure meets our deepest pleasure. Take that home with you today. Jesus is where God's deepest pleasure meets your deepest pleasure. God couldn't be happier than he is with Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, the heavens are open and the Father's voice is heard. One of the few times the Father's voice is heard and he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God delights. The Father in the Son, Jesus. And he delights in us. 
The psalmist in Psalm 16, which we find out later, is a psalm that anticipates the Son of God, Jesus. And I love this psalm. In the last verse of it, the psalmist says, speaking to God, in your right hand are pleasures forever. The psalmist looks to God for his enjoyment. His deepest pleasure is met in God. And so we see God the Father's delight in his Son. We see the psalmist's delight in God. And here Jesus is the intersection. Jesus is uh, where God's deepest pleasure meets our deepest pleasure. And so there's a warning. This sounds rather exclusive. And indeed it is. And the Apostle Paul says, be careful because you and I live in an open marketplace of other uh, things that compete for our affection, for our praise, because they offer us enjoyment. And there's nothing wrong with enjoyment in a variety of sources, but if we ever should seek to find our ultimate enjoyment in anything other than Jesus Christ, then it won't go well. You won't find fullness. You'll find a reduction in emptiness and disappointment. So in verse 8, he uses rather strong language. The Apostle Paul, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit that is according to human tradition. This phrase, see to it that no one takes you captive, is, is language, the word picture here is of a town that's been raided by enemy forces that takes away booty and people and enslaves them and kidnaps them and runs. Paul says, don't let anybody carry you away from the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Don't let anything take you and kidnap you and make you its prize and estrange you from the joy that God wants to give you in Jesus Christ. And the Colossians here in the center of Asia Minor are exposed to um, a vast marketplace of competing um, products for our uh, affection. There's the Roman narrative there's the Greek philosophical narrative. There are the mystery religions. We hear, if we read on, about worship of angels and ascetic practices. Don't touch this. Don't eat that. There's Israelite religion. All of these things, and they have the choice. And the Apostle Paul says, some of that's just fine. Some of it's going to be a problem. But all of it will be, uh, all of it will be an enemy to you that will kidnap you away if it takes you from the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. His all-sufficiency is all that you need for your pleasure, now and for all of eternity. The Bible makes two amazing claims about enjoyment. I want you to hear these two verses. The first verse, God says, I delight myself in you. Isaiah 62, 4. Think about that. God says to you, I delight myself in you. I created you for my joy, for my pleasure. And when I think about you, I experience delight when your name comes to my mind, when I look into your face and into your heart. It's an astounding thing. We might have thought that at best what God could say is, I tolerate you. <laughs> you know, it's been a long haul, you human beings, and I've come to the place where I could put up with you. I've worked it out. That's not what he says. I delight myself in you. Or we might understand, as he truly says, uh, other places, uh, I forgive you. That might seem to be the most that he could say, but it's not. He forgives us because he delights in us. 
That's an amazing claim about enjoyment. It's, you are a cause and occasion for God's enjoyment. But then the second claim is even more astounding. He says this in uh, Psalm 37.4, You delight yourself in me. I take my pleasure in you. You take your pleasure in me. I am not here as the stern one in the sky. I am here to delight you. I want you to find delight in me. Oh, I know there are a lot of wonderful gifts that I give you, things that are sure to make you smile and give you a lot of pleasure, all kinds of things. But if you should ever enjoy any of those and not see them in, in relationship to me, then they will take you captive. And trust me, you're mine. And no one will love you like I love you. So Paul says, be careful. There's a warning. See to it. Watch out. Verse Watch out that nobody else would pull you away, would satisfy. And it's been interesting to watch the news the last couple of weeks because, well, Sandy, Hurricane Sandy, it's a super storm, massive storm. And you look at the devastation and go, oh, my gosh, it's so tragic. But you know what? There's a tragedy upon tragedy. And the tragedy upon the tragedy is that we have believed the narrative that we could protect ourselves, that we aren't vulnerable, that we are self-sufficient. I mean, New York City, of all places, who would ever thought that New York City would be for a week half blacked out, that the subways wouldn't work, that the city would grind to a halt? This is the city that has Wall Street and Madison Avenue. This is the economic powerhouse of the world, except for London. And, 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 and we believe this about this myth of our own sufficiency and progress in the world. And you hear people saying, I lost everything. And they did lose a lot. But they're standing there at their beach house or in a pile of rubble of all their material possessions, and they're saying, I lost everything. Did you really lose everything? If your material possessions are everything, I guess you did. But as one pastor said, if you went into that storm with Jesus, you came out of that storm with Jesus. And you couldn't lose everything because you had everything in Jesus. Or the election. A friend of mine, from many of ours, here at this church before the election started, she said, you know, speaking of many candidates, half the people are going to be disappointed on November 6th. That's just the way it is. And, you know, uh, actually, I would say that all of us are disappointed because we all had initiatives or, or congresspersons or, you know, presidential candidates or whatever. And where you are, by the way, I love that about UPC. If we all vote, we pretty much cancel each other out, which is a great thing. About which you should still vote. But you know what? We share the sense of excitement and disappointment. I know I talked to one person. He said, you know what? I'm going to go down to the store and buy some antidepressants after the election. Really? Is it that bad? You know, this person's a very wealthy person. And I think, you know, he pushed the shove. He probably admit the fact that his wealth is one of his gods in his life. And he's afraid now that someone's going to take it away. If you seek pleasure in the things of this world, or in human traditions, if you add anything to Jesus, you threaten the fullness that he wants to give you. Jesus plus nothing equals fullness. Jesus is where God's deepest pleasure meets our deepest pleasure. And when he gives us that pleasure, we respond in worship and praise. I worked with college students for a number of years, 15-plus years, um, it's a, it was a great calling. It's easy to confuse that calling with a love for pizza. But convers- <laughs> my full-time job was to talk to students, and I love students. Um, and I, but I want to tell you, one of the things that I heard again and again and again from students, it sticks in my mind, and maybe you've even heard this from young people in your life or, or uh, um, maybe from students, and 
Um, it's this. Well, George, I have great admiration for Jesus. I, I think, you know, I see in him wisdom and I see in him justice and I see him truth and I'm, I'm drawn to him totally. And one day I'm going to give my life to him. But not right now because I want to have fun first. Right? And this idea that if you give your life to Jesus, he will deprive you of joy somehow. This idea that somehow you kind of put him off and find more joy somewhere else. I'm going, tell me what that looks like. And I'm talking to a kid whose idea of joy is a, a cup of beer on the boardwalk Friday night. Or another student whose idea of joy is a full backpack with books in the student union because they're hoping this is going to land them a job that's going to make them wealthy and powerful. Or I'm talking to a guy in a frat house whose idea of joy is a, a string of serial sexual encounters, thinking that that will fill this. And Jesus says, oh, dear one, you can run that way, but you will find yourself spent and weary. Somebody said, life is the best evangelist. You do that long enough and you're going to know you have a need for something that really fulfills. And Paul says, Jesus is the fullness of God. And when you come to him, you come to fullness in your own life. Sometimes I walk away from, from worship and I ask myself a question. Um, was that worth it? And I say, well, that didn't do anything for me. And I need to think about that. I'm, I'm wondering after reflecting on this passage whether the problem in those situations is I brought myself to church, but I didn't bring myself to Jesus. Oh, church can be a disappointment. I mean, I, I get emails about the size of our bulletins, the length of our candles, the lighting on the chancel, and I just wonder, you know, if we get preoccupied with those things, or the traditions of men, thinking worship requires an organ or an electric guitar or a pastor with sandals and a goatee, um, are we missing Jesus? I brought myself to church, but I didn't bring myself to Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, hey, look, don't crowd. Don't crowd the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. It's him, it's him, it's him. It's Jesus plus nothing equals fullness. I want to give you a moment just to reflect on what it is that you worship. I mean, just think about this for a second. And if it's helpful for you to write something down on the bulletin, flip it over and grab a pencil and... And ask yourself, what do I worship besides Jesus? We all, we all. There's something in all of our lives. There's some things that compete with Jesus. I, I could name them from my life, and I just want you to be able to identify them in your life. What competes for Jesus in my life? What do I worship? And what do I seek ultimate enjoyment? Let me give you a second. Did anybody think of their health? Did anybody think of their family? So what a good thing, our kids. But really bad idol, our children. Not good for us, not good for them. Did anybody think about our possessions, the stuff that we have or, or think we need to have? Our status, our good looks. No, not this group. Uh, <laughs> Exercise, music. I think we begin to get a sense for how it is that when worship or when our lives are really for God, they become fuller. This is what the divines of the Westminster 
uh, assembly discovered or, or articulated when they framed the first question of the shorter catechism, which goes like this. What is the chief end of man? What's it all about? And the answer, chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To enjoy him forever. You will never glorify God until you enjoy him. It's out of that living, vibrant, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can walk through the rubble of New York City. You can lose everything. And Jesus says, why would you worship anything other than me? Because I am the one who is face to face with you this morning saying, I love you. I delight in you. And I want nothing more than for you to delight in me. John Calvin puts it this way. Yeah, this stiff starch John Calvin even, as some of his handlers would have us believe. For until you recognize that you owe everything to God, that you are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of your every good, that you should seek nothing beyond him, you will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless you establish your complete happiness in Jesus, you will never give yourselves truly and sincerely to him. Do you notice the repetition? In him, in him, in him. Throughout this chapter, that's the refrain. In him, you have come to fullness. Let me close with this prayer from Thomas Aquinas who prays, and we with him, give us, O Lord, a steadfast heart, which no unworthy affection may drag downward. Give us an unconquered heart, which no tribulation can wear out. Give us an upright heart, which no unworthy purpose may tempt aside. Bestow on us also, O Lord, our God, understanding, to know you, diligence to seek you, wisdom to find you, and a faithfulness that may finally embrace you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.